Okay, Beyonders, welcome back to Tabletop and Beyond. I am your host, Justin. I am here with Dan. Welcome, Dan. Good morning. And we are joined by legendary guest, Mr. Paul Fricker. <laughs> Paul, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Paul, you have officially joined Chaosium in the last couple of weeks, and we are excited to hear about that. Like uh, we told you before the show, we've had Mike Mason on here. We've had Michael O'Brien on here, and you're just continuing the legacy of excellent guests from Chaosium that we have that we love to see. So, uh, you know, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. I mean, that's a lot to live up to, but uh, <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah. So we, um, I think I mentioned to you when I was reaching out that uh, I ran into you at Gen Con. And uh, you were working the Chaosium booth there. And I have zero expectations that you remember our, our encounter because, uh, you know, there's like thousands of people uh, there. But uh, it was great to see you there. And I, I had a thought in my mind when you were there working the booth. I said, you know, here's Paul working this Chaosium booth. He's not officially part of Chaosium, but I wonder if there's something going on here. You know, and sure enough, <laughs> right, uh, a couple yeah. months later, here you are uh, with Chaosium. So we're excited to talk to you about your journey on, uh, you know, how you got to this point, mm -hmm. um, some of the work that you have done with Cthulhu and, and other things. And um, more importantly, I think that's uh, very interesting to uh, some folks who are getting ready to run some Halloween uh, RPGs is like what are some tips and tricks that you do to ratchet up the fear and horror in your rpgs so uh we're excited about that but before we get started in all of that let's start with our geek week dan why don't you kick us off yeah i've had a particularly geeky week that usually happens to me when after i've completed one of these uh trips around the sun um and uh, gotten a year older so um it also means I, I waste money on myself particularly. So I, I realized I was only about five or six supplements away from having every single product that has ever been put out for the Empire for Star Wars Legion. So as a completist, I had no like list building reason to go buy a whole bunch of supplements. In fact, I bought, bought some of those I knew that are not very good in the meta. But as a pure nerd, uh, total completist, I've got everything now. It's all glued up. I'm just about ready to finish painting probably today. I'll probably prime today and probably start painting tomorrow. So so then I will. Uh, I, it, it, I've told myself I can build any list in the meta now for Star Wars Legion. Not that I even compete very often, but that's the excuse I've given myself. My other quick geek week thing is my good friend Justin Smith here. Helped, uh, helped us run a game of Pirate Borg. Uh, for those who are not familiar, Pirate, Pirate Borg is kind of a, a, a gritty uh, pirate RPG from uh, our friends at Free League um, and at Limitron. And uh, we just we did that just a couple nights ago, and, and it was really a great time. Justin did an amazing job, and uh, we brought in a lot of people with different RPG experience, but everybody knows and loves Pirate, so... Uh, we realize that it's a pretty brutal system, especially when it comes to character creation, because the buddy of mine sitting next to me during character creation only had one hit point. And so we were, we were afraid, we were afraid he'd get hit with, you know, like a, a stiff wind would take him out at any good point. So anyway, between Legion and Pir 
Pirate Borg, it was a pretty pretty geeky week for me. And and yet he survived. He did. Sur- no, he didn't. He died. Oh no, he died. He died. <laughs> well, he, he actually he, died in a very epic way. He made it to the final boss, and we sent him to go find the fight the final boss first. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. They 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 walked into uh, a temple, and on the altar was the this diamond that they were sent to go get. The only catch was that the diamond was in the hilt of a ceremonial dagger stabbed into a skeleton that was on this uh, altar. So he had to, you know, dislodge this uh, dagger from the skeleton. And when he did so, uh, the skeleton awoke and uh, ended up, they ended up wrestling over this dagger. And in, in one of the most epic moments of the game, he, he ended up um, struggling and they had kind of this, you know, strength test that they did against each other and they tied. And so they were just continually wrestling over this dagger. And he's like, I'm going to use my, um, I'm going to use my uh, uh, devil's luck coin, which is like a fate point or something like that to re-roll. Oh, and I convinced him to do this. Yeah, to re-roll this. And because he rolled pretty low or like pretty high on his strength and pretty low on the other guy's strength. And so he did it and he ended up rolling like a one. A one. And which guaranteed his murder. It guaranteed his murder. Right. Like so so I convinced him to do it. I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, burn that point. You could get the whole diamond. To be honest, that player wanted that his his character wanted the knife. We didn't send him to it. We didn't send him to his death. He volunteered and we smiled like the Cheshire cat and sent him up to go fight the monster. It was anyway. great. Yeah, he 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 ended up um, you know, dying and his death he also unwisely chose to stand in the sacrificial bowl that So he's reanimated the and then he, he fought us. So Yeah. He so actually had, he had more hit points as a re re uh reincarnated skeleton than he did <laughs> in life. So anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's neither here nor there justin what the if, what do you what do you take us away from from us spinning yards about pirate oh, rpgs great. of days of yore it was it was great that's uh, the tales of bill the pirate but um we uh yeah so it that, that was good paul how was your geek week uh yeah i played what did i play yesterday i played iron swan Oh. Uh, with some friends it's it's essentially it's, it, i think it was originally designed as a solo game so, you know a, a fantasy game uh, but there is a version of it that can be played with a group so we were playing that yesterday and i think it, it it's it's a you know a grandchild of the the kind of apocalypse world style games um but yeah that was a lot of fun there's a, quite a lot of rolling dice and it's quite free-flowing and kind of improvised i think by the by the gm um to a large degree uh, but uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. It was good. It was good. There was kind of a, a an entering Moria scene. I mean, it wasn't really Moria, and it wasn't a kraken. It was like vines crawling around, and there was this gateway, and we were all kind of these vines were like trying to grab us, and we were trying to back into this this gateway to what I figure is probably a dungeon. I hope it is anyway. And we're, we're backing into that and backing into the stairs. And I said to the GM, you know, this is a lot like. Gandalf and the crew entering Moria and he's like oh yeah I didn't think of that but it is yeah so I'm just hoping all the vines are going to pull down the doorway and it's going to trap us in there or something but yeah awesome. so, what, was uh, the name, what was the name of that game again Paul 
Iron Swan. Iron Iron Swan. Okay, cool. Swan. Swarm. Swarm. Sworn. Sworn. Sorry. Like Sorry. to swear an oath. I mispronounced it. Iron um, Swarm. Sworn. Got it. Yeah. Let we'll me check just pull it, it up real quick because I, to be honest with you, Paul, I have not heard of. This. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I see that it won a um, 2020 any for best free game. Yep. So this was yep. the um, the free digital edition includes the 270 page rulebook, character sheet, printable asset cards, and reference handouts. So um, that's pretty that's pretty cool. I mean, I'm probably going to get the sack now because I'm promoting, you know, a, a non-Justian <laughs> game. But what can I do? That was what I played. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. no. I I think it looks really cool. So I'm going to have to check this out because I had, uh, like I said, never never seen that before. So how? Let me ask you, Paul. How often hmm. do you get together and play with uh, your crew? Would you say? Um, well, I have a regular Sunday afternoon group. When I say regular, it's a role-playing group. So it doesn't meet every week, <laughs> but we try, we try to meet every week. Uh, beyond that, at the moment, beyond that, it's mostly conventions. Okay. Uh, so, and I'm doing like, what have I got? I've got a couple of conventions. I had a couple of conventions last month. I've got one or two this month. So yeah, they're, they're not too infrequent. Um, and I usually, I like to, when I go to a convention, I like to run a game and play a game if I can, mm -hmm. if it's like a one day event, yeah, yeah. a couple of games in. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, we have our, uh, we, we have started what has kind of been an annual little mini convention. We did skip last year cause all of us went to Gen Con, um, but all of us went to Gen Con this year and we decided to pick it up again. We have an mm. annual little convention that we call Guild Con. There's probably 20 to 30 people that come to it, which is not like anything to, to sneeze at, right? Like nice. in terms of a small little convention. The best part is it's at our buddy's basement. Oh, um, awesome. he has like a large, he has a very large basement. We can put, um, you know, five or six tables down there. Wow. And uh, we ha have done it out of his basement for the last few years, but it started out with just, you know, a bunch of us, like five or six of us that just wanted to get together for a long weekend and just just play until we were completely exhausted. And um, we've just kind of uh, in, in added people to it and, and continued that tradition of being able to do that. So we have our little mini convention called GuildCon coming up in um, about three weeks. Like it's going to be the first uh, real weekend, our second real weekend in uh, November. So... We're oh, nice. I think that. it's nice having like a community that gets together rather than, yep. I mean, I, I love Gen Con and big conventions like yep. that where you just meet in loads of people you never met before. But having a, you know, like in a buddy's basement with a couple of dozen people, that sounds great because, you, you you know, you're going to know everybody and maybe there's a few new faces each time. But um, yeah, there's a sense of you know, tight community, which is nice. We realized that, you know, like we love going to Gen Con and I, when I go to a, a convention like Gen Con, I like trying all the things that I can't play at my house, you know, and so I'll find mm. the very weird random RPGs that, you know, um, aren't really out there and, and things that um, are being kind of demoed and things like that. Um, but <clears throat> at Guild Con, we like to play all of the games that we really like to play mm. and as we were putting out a schedule of like, you know, who's going to run what and when we realized that we really need a week. 
<laughs> full <laughs> week to be able to play all the fun things that we want to play and run and and all yeah. that stuff. And so if if only we had enough time to to dedicate to just playing games, you know. So maybe when well, we all hit the lottery one day. I don't know how local you guys are, but maybe you have to do one in the you know one in October and one in the spring. Awesome we're we're all very local uh usually it comes down to how many brownie points we all have with our wives <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> well i mean yeah. my wife's a role player as well so you know get your wives playing if that's the case we tried that one time and it uh <laughs> we realized that they're not role players it's not, it's not for everyone it's not for everyone no. yeah yeah well yeah. i call that the second most awkward night of our marriage <laughs> i won't ask anymore. i'm just kidding <laughs> awesome so for uh for my geek week i wanted to i was uh obviously ran that pirate board game but i wanted to talk about um the apple tv series for all mankind oh. um it is an alternative uh space race story as as if um the russians had made it to space and to the moon first and so that drove the United States to push their <clears throat> Apollo moon landing programs harder and actually get like bases up on the moon um, to kind of claim it. So it's almost like uh, in our in our history now, the United States made it to the moon and because nobody really followed up, like the Russians didn't really, you know, make it there. Um where everybody's like, okay, well, that was cool, and let's just move on to other priorities that we have as a nation rather than dumping all this mm. money into a space program. Um, with this alternative history, it's like, oh, no, the, the space race is still alive and, and strong. And so, you know, like in the second season, there's like a big base that's like on the moon um, that they have. And so it, it's been very interesting. Um, it's, I think, more heavily aligned towards the drama of the astronauts and being on the moon up there for like six months at a time and things like that, rather than um, the sci-fi aspect of it. But it's really fun to uh, watch this and imagine like, what if these things had happened, right? Instead of like um, thinking about, uh, you know, the Soviet invasion of, of Afghanistan in the 80s, which kind of didn't happen because they were focused on going to the moon. Like, what would have happened if, like, those things had worked out and, and we were fighting over the moon instead of, you know, doing proxy mm. wars and, and, and on Earth and stuff like that? So there's some interesting things about it. Have you heard the podcast called 13 Minutes to the Moon? No, huh? So it's a... Uh... There's it's quite a lot of episodes uh, and it goes into uh, great detail about the factual uh, build up to that, you know, the to the moon landing. Basically, I mm -hmm. think the 13 minutes bit is the bit where they uh, go down in the landing module. And I think maybe okay. it takes 13 minutes to reach the surface of the moon. But it, it, it goes through the the whole build up to the program and all the interviews a lot of people that were involved in it and yeah it's, it's really fascinating so i think obviously you've got an interest in that and yeah this is you know that's like the the true story told in great great detail i am going so. to put that down on my list of things to listen to i yeah, it's really well listen yeah i really really love those podcasts that are um kind of hyper focused on a subject and you know like have a it's like it's 13 episodes and that's it, right? That's their, you know, maybe that's the the season that they have that they're doing. Um, 
and it's just very like deep dive into it. Those mm. were really, really interesting to me. So yeah, thank you for that. But uh, yeah, that was kind of my geek week watching that um, as you know, other than preparing for RPGs and, and, and things like that. So um, I've been telling you to watch stuff. that show for years. I started watching that right when it came out. Yeah, I, it is true. You have been telling me that. The problem is, is I don't have Apple products, so I don't yeah, have like go. a natural way to Apple TV. Um, and so I was finally got around to, uh, to picking it up and checking it out. So cool. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I Ronald, think, uh, Ronald D. Moore, who did Battlestar Galactica and who was a big part of Deep Space Nine, is the showrunner for For All mm-hmm. Mankind. So it's really well done. Yeah. Yeah. And I would argue that a lot of the Apple TV products right now are probably some of the best streaming content out there. Uh, you know, like uh, Severance is like one of my absolute favorites. It's so good, you know. And uh, yeah, Paul, you seem to enjoy Yeah, enjoy look, that. looking forward to the uh, season two of that. Yeah, yeah. 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 So there's a, there's a lot of really good ones on there. And um, so I'm keeping my eyes open as uh, some new series are dropping on the Apple TV stuff. So for sure. But uh, yeah, it sounds like we all had a pretty good, uh, pretty good geek week there, and uh, very, very nice and exciting. So, um, Paul, let's talk about let's talk about you for a little bit. So, um, you have obviously been playing RPGs probably for a very long time, um, and uh, you've written several modules yourself, uh, mm-hmm. several adventures, and published them. And many of them are published on the Miskatonic University um repository kind yeah. of yeah repository which is basically a co- community content um section of chaosium right that the, yeah. you can you can go and access uh community created products yeah i mean it's been a great facility for uh everybody that mm-hmm. who wants to write a scenario so you can anybody who has an interest in Call of Cthulhu and wishes to write a scenario can do so. Uh, it, you know, it's a bit more involved than just writing it because you want to mm-hmm. write it. You want to get someone, ideally you want to get somebody to play test it and edit it and so on and get a bit of artwork for it. You might use, choose free art that you can find uh, and then, you know, put it together. But once you've done that, you can then upload it and, there's no licensing involved. You know, the, the repository, like all community content programs, just take care of that, takes care of that. So you don't have any concerns about licensing. Uh, and it goes on the repository and any sales, you get 50%. So Wow, you know, 50%. And, I didn't realize it you was that You get 50% of the cover price goes direct to you, direct to your account. Uh, and the rest is kind of split. I think Chaosium gets a percentage and Drive Through RPG gets a percentage, and that's the way it works. Yeah, and, so, yeah, go ahead. And I'll just say, if anybody is interested in doing that, uh, if you're on Facebook, then there is a very supportive uh, Facebook community. I think it's just called Miskatonic University Repository Creators. If you put those words into Facebook, I'm pretty sure you'll find the group. Uh, and it's it, it, there's lots of people who are very. It's a very nice community that's built up around that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for those of you who are interested, Miskatonic Repository is basically a subsection of Drive Drive Through RPG, where you find all of the titles. Um, so you can get them in PDF and on print and demand. Um, so if you're familiar with Drive Through RPG, this is where you can see them. What I really liked about um, the Miskatonic University uh, titles is that you can um, 
find the ones that have gone gold and platinum, right? The ones that have been um, hot sellers. And those are, um, you know, not to take anything away from a lot of the new ones or anything like that, but some of those gold and platinum ones are really great adventures and they show from the, you know, the sales that they have um, generated mm. with those. And, uh, you know, there's, um, it, it, if you are, you know, if you have already worked through your, um, uh, or, you know, horror on the Orient Express that you've done the official product from Chaosium and you're looking for more, like I would, absolutely rec uh, recommend people to go check out the Miskatonic repository for some excellent, excellent titles to uh, play in their games. So mm. yeah, something, something definitely to check out. So how many titles have you put up on the, on the repository yourself? I have three, I have three titles mm -hmm. on there. The first one was full fathom five, which is mm -hmm. set aboard a whaling ship in 1847. If memory serves me correct. Uh, the second one was, Dockside Dogs, uh, which is a my kind of take on Reservoir Dogs, the Tarantino film. And the third one is My Little Sister Wants You to Suffer, which is a, a, a kind of sci-fi futuristic uh, Call of Cthulhu scenario. That sounds awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my little so, sister wants you to suffer. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is going places. This is Good. going to this it is. Is gonna be great. It's fantastic. So one of the uh, one of the things I, I wanted to talk about specifically, and and there's a reason why um, that I decided to pull up full, uh, full fathom five. Well, there's a couple reasons. Number one, um, our astute listeners and viewers of this will recognize this artwork, as we had John Sumrow on ah. the show uh, about a, a few minutes, maybe it was almost a year ago um, that we had John Sumrow on the show to talk about you know, what it's like being an artist in the RPG community and, you know, what, what, what work is like, what the process is like, etc. And uh, this is one of the images that he pulled up saying that he did this for uh, you and the, and the product here. Um, the, one of the interesting stories that he told was that this, um, this sort of wizard looking guy that's happening here on the cover was his neighbor that he had come stand in his garage oh. for a little while so that he could, uh, you know, get the, get the uh, pose right. And uh, I guess his neighbor even had the beard and everything. Oh, and awesome. So I didn't him, know that. Yeah. He had him stand there for a little while to, to get it. And the guy's like, are you almost done? He's like, hold on. <laughs> but I can tell you something else. I don't know if John told you this, but, but first off, John, you know, I love working with John and uh, I love his artwork. Uh, the captain in the in like the in the tall hat mm -hmm. on the bottom uh, bottom right there, he he sent me some sketches and I kind of had a you know we, I worked with John you know giving him direction on what I wanted for the cover and the sketch that he'd done of the captain I we had a little bit of back and forth about you know I kind of want him like this like this and eventually I was just like I'm just going to take a photo so I I sort of had myself doing. So that's that's basically a photograph that he's interpreted uh, from my photo. So I'm the captain there, um, which that you know, is amazing. Was kind of fun. But John, you know, he does, I've seen some of his other uh, following him, following his social media. Sometimes he posts his uh, I don't know what you'd call them, like like working photographs that mm -hmm. uh, you know, with models and so on uh, to to 
that he that he works from into the into the artwork which is quite marvelous to see and and yeah, yeah and i was really pleased with this cover it's uh it's fantastic his um he he has so much character in a lot of the stuff that he has drawn and and uh you know i i was going to point out the captain's face here where there's a lot of emotion going on mm. in in just that like little image right which is like horror um anticipation a little bit you know yeah. and you know disbelief <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know there's a lot of stuff that's happening there so yeah uh, i think so yeah it's very uh very good now um i want to talk to you like so i actually purchased this product uh not too long ago because i plan to run this scenario at okay. guildcon um coming up in a couple of weeks and one of the things that intrigued me about it is that it wasn't set in 1920s um, Arkham, Massachusetts, right? Yeah. Uh, you don't see a lot of pro like Cape, uh, Cthulhu products set in the 18, you know, 50s yeah. or 40s, let alone on a whaling ship. So, can you tell us a little bit of like why you decided to come up with a scenario in the time period and 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 things like that? Yeah, I think I don't start off with a vision of a kind of stereotypical setting like the 1920s Massachusetts. A lot of Call of Cthulhu scenarios fit into that because if you want continuity, then that gives you that. Mm -hmm. But my approach to the game, particularly because I very much wrote you know, worked with with Mike uh, on a lot of uh, convention games. And convention games, to me, are very much like a horror movie or a horror story in that the setup can be anything. And at the end of the movie, the, the movie's finished. And for the movie director, the next film they're going to make doesn't have to follow on from the previous one. It could be a totally different story. And if it's a horror film, chances are it's modern day, but, you know, oft, often is. Um, but we... Yeah, just because the you know just because the film director made one film, it, it doesn't build it builds an expectation of quality, but it doesn't build an expectation of the um, the, the plot. I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, so I just get ideas, uh, and for this one, I was a big fan of uh, Moby Dick by Herman Melville, and I've always wanted to be to, to be influenced by that in some way in in terms of uh, creating a scenario. And I just kind of wrestled with that until I had a, a scenario, really. And if I, you know, the other ones I mentioned, um, Dockside Dogs, obviously that's influenced by the, the Tarantino film, Reservoir Dogs. And um, I'm not going to say what My Little Sister was based on, but because it's a bit of a spoiler, but, um, you know, that, that was equally based on a, I guess, inspired to some degree by a movie. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, so often I, I just get my inspiration from, you know, I think, whatever sort of sparks your imagination, really. Just run with it and don't be constrained. Uh, I was talking to Mike about this, about, you know, the, the game Call of Cthulhu, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's Call of Cthulhu is a an H.P. Lovecraft story. But the game is so much more than that. The game mm -hmm. to us, I think, is, is just a... You can run any story, well, any kind of hor generally horror-based, but not strictly horror. It could be kind of almost like a thriller type thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I was watching um, Before I Go to Sleep last week with 
Nicole Kidman. I think I'm getting the name right. Uh, the actor, the actor, right? Um, and it's about a woman who wake. She's been through a traumatic experience, and every morning she wakes up and she can't remember what happened the day before. She can't remember anything from her life mm. previously. Uh, so she wakes up, and there's a guy in her bed, and he tells her that he's her husband, and he so, so he has to tell her that every morning. And I was just, I, I saw that, you know, the promo for it, and I thought, yeah, that that's just the kind of thing that interests me. And I kind of thought it was going to be a horror, but then I saw, oh no, it's the genres. Were, were like thriller and and mm -hmm. so on um but to me it was it bordered on kind of horror film yeah it, it didn't have like the horror tropes particularly but kind of yeah. a psychological horror i guess um so i think you know in call of cthulhu you can do all sorts of things and sometimes with my scenarios and and designs i end up bolting a bit of cthulhu mythos onto it to sort of say yes this is definitely call of cthulhu uh -huh. but really i'm just creating something that i think is a, an interesting story and that's usually kind of horror based yeah you know i i had heard the other day and this may be rumor and and dan may be able to confirm this or not um but the uh disney the disney star wars story andor um, that is basically kind of a lead up to the Rogue One movie um, was I had heard that it was written as a kind of spy thriller script and uh, originally uh, agnostic of a uh, kind of a genre and that uh, Disney had picked it up and basically worked it into being a Star Wars story. So it started out as a story first, and then you had, you know, the elements of Star Wars put into it. Now, whether that's true or not, um, I cannot confirm that because as I just kind of heard that through the grapevine. Um, but I think you find a lot of, you know, writers writing good stories, and then they say, you know, this will fit in this genre, and then they end up tweaking it or bolting on aspects of it that um, make it that. And it sounds like that's a little bit of what you did um, with this Full Fathom 5. And um, I was going to ask you if Moby Dick was pretty much the inspiration of this. And, you know, I think like if I scroll down, one of the first quotes that you have in here um, in the uh, in the opening scene right here is from Moby Dick, right? In the opening scene, yeah. it's a Moby Dick quote. And, uh, you know, you just don't see too many wailing <laughs> stories no. out there, you know, as an RPG that I think that's what makes us very unique. I mean, I think one of the beauties of the whaling ship is isolation because usually in horror, isolation is a great uh, aspect because, you know, it, it, it stops people reaching out for help. Uh, it stops, it, it, it just means you're, you're stuck there. Uh, you, can be, you can be stuck with those people. There's 23 people on board. There's nobody else. You're on a ship. You can't get to land. You can't call the police. There's nothing, nothing else you can do. Uh, so, you know, you, you can't run away from this. Well, you can. You can jump in the sea. <laughs> but that's your, Not that's the best your option. Escape. Not always the best option. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One of the, um, one of the uh, things that I uh, was getting from the Full Fathom 5 when I was reading it is it would, it had kind of echoes of, the uh, I don't know if you saw the uh, AMC television series called The Terror. 
Um, it was about I, the ship that had uh, gotten stuck in the um, the Northwest Passage, basically, yes, and, and yes. iced in, and they were stuck there, right, for a long time, you know, like months and months, because you know, once that freezes up near the North Pole, like it doesn't unfreeze for a very long time, and um, and I think even that year it was particularly bad. It, the ice came much earlier than they had thought. And it stayed for longer than than they thought. And so um, the true life story is this, this really happened, right? Mm. And when they found the ship, uh, nobody was there. And there was rumors of people, you know, talking with the indigenous people, um, some of the Inuit and um, that were up there. And, you know, they had mentioned this boat and stuff like that. And so there was a big mystery of like what had happened to them. Um, but if you watch the AMC show, isolation was such a key part of that story yeah. and it really like you didn't have anywhere to go to you didn't have anywhere to turn to uh, you were you know for them they were stuck out on this sea of ice uh for the full fathom five you're literally out in the middle of the ocean and it's not like you can go leave the situation or even just go for help or anything like that you're you're you got to deal with what you got to deal with yeah, as I recall, with that with that search for the Northwest Passage, which is what what the the, the is the terror, isn't it? It's called. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, they actually intended to get stuck in the ice. You know, that was part of the design. Mm -hmm. They knew that the passage would 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 be a long journey, and yeah. I think they had provisions. Yep. If, you know that that well, that was one of the things that amazed me about reading up on on that that journey. That you know, the real journey is that oh yeah, we'll we'll get stuck in the ice for a few months. And then it'll thaw, yeah. and then we'll carry on. It's like what? It's going to be stuck <laughs> right? in a yeah. you know not very big vessel. I mean, they're they're ships. They're not yeah. little boats, but you know the ships. They're not massive, um, and you're going to be stuck in there in the ice with just what you've got on board. It's just, and I think when I read Moby Dick, one of the things that I'd always you know I'd heard of whaling ships and so on, and I'd always kind of figured that you'd get on the whaling ship you'd go out for a few days, catch some whales and come home. Mm -hmm. They're out for years. Yeah. They, yeah. They leave Nantucket. They may not come back for two or three years. Uh, and yeah, they might touch base in a few ports and they might have a few uh, meets with other ships and, and, and so on. But essentially, yeah, they're really out at sea for very, you know, just mind bogglingly long time. Um, and yeah, I would just just kind of captured my imagination. So you know, with the full fathom five at the start, one of the things is you've been out at sea for thirteen months, mm -hmm. um, and and now you're you know you're somewhere in the Pacific. And part of it is they kind of follow the whale. I don't know if they call them whale roads. That's kind of Beowulf kind of language, but the kind of paths that the yeah. the whales kind of took the migration. Uh, 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 paths, I suppose, um, and then have you know ships and charts, and obviously you know the South Pacific to uh, to Lovecraft, Lovecraftian minded people suggest something else, perhaps. But uh... right now, um, when you wrote this story, uh, like you said, you you know you were inspired by Moby Dick. Are like were you are you you know? And I'm asking this probably mm. kind of understanding the question. Are you a whaling boat expert? 
on this you know like for like did you know like all the ins and outs of like you know whaling ships or did, were you just like i'm just gonna roll with this and kind of learn along the way and you know just had to, to learn cool. along the way yeah, yeah. i really <clears throat> i really don't know much well i really know nothing about sailing um so normally with i mean this is something else if i was just right running this scenario for myself mm -hmm. I would I would just make up some stuff probably. I'd do a cursory look at I don't know a Wikipedia article or something and then I'd just 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 run with it and I'd just base it on what I know from watching like Master and Commander which is a, an awesome film and they do meet yep. a whaling ship during that film as well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um and having read Moby Dick that would be enough for me to present it to my group. Um, but when I'm publishing it, I feel a, a duty to provide more, you know, factual information uh, and more, you know, more research. Um, but researching these things, yeah, it was, yeah, I mean, research is always quite hard for me anyway. I always, always find research quite hard because it's to a degree, it's where do you stop? Yeah. Um, and a lot of this stuff is like old documents. There are, um, there are kind of historical societies and, and studies about whaling and the impact it had and the people who did it and so on. So there is quite a bit of information. But when I came to the, the ship plans, I remember being particularly challenging because there are ship plans, but they'll have, they'll have words on them that meant nothing to me. And I had to figure out, well, what is, I can't remember off the top of my head, I can't remember what some of the terms were, but it, 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 even... Uh, yeah, even the the regular nautical terms. On yeah, if, even if you just look at a modern ship today, they'll use nautical terms, right? And and if you're not yeah. um, educated in that, you, then you have to look up to see what they actually mean. Um, but when we're talking about ones from 170 years ago, uh, of a very different type of ship, you know, we're talking about sailing ships, and we're talking about um, yeah, the equipment for whaling. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of that was quite obscure. And I don't think I had to make stuff up. I think I was able to to research it, but maybe not to be able to find some of the depth of information that I would have liked to have done. On the other hand, I think there's a limit to how much information you want to give someone. This right. is really designed as a one shot. Mm -hmm. And it's still, you know, there's there's quite a bit of information in there because, you know, you Justin, you you've got the the book. You know, booklet, whatever you want to call it, yep. slim volume, the scenario. And you're going to run it as a one shot for maybe three or four hours. How many hours do you want to put in <laughs> in preparation? That's the question right. for you. How many hours would you say was, you know, if you, you know, even if it's like, you know, it's something you really want to run and yeah. you've got some great players and you want to do a good job of it, how many hours? Do you feel is is kind of a, a reasonable investment? Are you willing to put in to prepare? Is, is yeah. that a question you can answer? No, I yeah, I mean, I think because it's a you know, it's a one shot. The pregens are included in all of this. You know what I mean? So I don't need mm. to like come up with characters. I don't need to come up with this. I don't need to write the scenario. Right? This is me reading it and yeah. preparing it. I would say this would only take me probably like. I don't know, two to three hours to like really run through, you know, like that includes reading it top to bottom and then playing out, you know, it kind of in my mind and, and, and my notes, like, you know, 
things I need to watch out for, things I need to be aware of, um, and how to how to move the cheese if needed, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> or uh, to, to to effectively run the game, right? So I would say like two or three hours, right? Probably. Yeah. Nice. So that's kind of an evening prep and an evening yeah. playing kind of. Yeah. 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 I think I think that's yeah. yeah, it's fair enough. I don't think I I can't really expect people to spend more time than that in preparation. Yeah. So that's kind of what I mean by the level of information you can give. Yeah. I think because if I went into greater detail you might you might be bored reading it or you might enjoy reading it but either way are you going to be able to how much of that are you going to be able to relate to your yeah. players you know in in the in the game so i think there's a limit to how much i think as a writer i'm just trying to give you enough of an impression of the setting such that you can confidently present it to your players and give them the impression of a real world a convincing yeah. world at least yeah, and absolutely. you as the writer, you've you've filtered out a lot of that unnecessary stuff. Mm. Uh, you know, the, he, here's the information that's that's useful to drive the story forward. Mm -hmm. um, and if the players get off the rails a little bit, you've got some more to go off of. But yeah, the great thing about having the writers be also players, also be great GMs, is that you you're able to edit the film. Right. You're able yeah. to shoot more footage yet not use that footage in the final product, but have that footage still and have that research inform that final product without it being so <clears throat> overt and and just have to be more data that the GM has to load in their mental RAM. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that, that sort of stands out to me is like, yeah, as an illustration, perhaps, is there's a thing on the ship called the Triworks. Who knows what that is? Well, what it is, is some basically an uh a stove that they melted down the the blubber the whale blubber to to render it into oil and that's fine but you've got a big metal stove that you're stoking with now i'm not sure if it was coal or wood um but you so you're building a big fire under a cauldron basically on a wooden ship <laughs> with a massive pot of oil highly flammable well, that's the whole point of the oil, right? It's yeah. highly flammable. On board, you know, on the deck of a wooden ship. And, you know, when you tell the players that, they're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait like, a minute. Modern health and safety. <laughs> I don't think enters into it. And it uh, smells wonderful. Yeah. Oh, Out God. in the middle of nowhere, too, right? Yeah. That's great. So just a little thing like that, though, I think that's a, a little everybody can kind of almost visualize that and it and it just it makes you go oh my god that sounds dangerous uh and it sounds convincing that you know obviously that they would have to do that and it, it doesn't take a lot i think to to pull you into the to the setting then if you can imagine that that heat and the smell and well you immediately said about the smell right it, that that pulls you sensorily into the into the setting and i think it's, it's hooks like that, that you can use it doesn't have to be a great deal just that one thing pulls you in i think mm -hmm. absolutely now uh products like this obviously uh you know got the attention of chaosium for you and you've uh like we mentioned earlier recently joined them full-time so what are you doing for them now um it's you know it's, it's being a part of the official crew yep so i'm on board as uh i'm termed an associate editor 
so I work with uh, Mike and the rest of the team. There's a there's a team of editors that work on the the Call of Cthulhu range, and we have uh, a whole raft of of different books and uh, and projects that I can't really talk about. <laughs> but um, th- but what I can say is there's there's a lot of things you know lined up to come out, and each one of those products, uh, you know, what do we have come out? We had um, I wasn't involved with Regency Cthulhu, but that's one that came out you know, uh, last mm-hmm. year, I think. Uh, and uh, there was Cults of Cthulhu, which I, I had a hand in um, editing the scenarios for that. Uh, that was back when I was freelance. So I've been working with Chaosium for um, like over 10 years, but as a freelancer. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is just kind of formalizing my role, I guess. Uh, and day to day, I'm... Uh, editing we got you know some projects and from upcoming books and uh, Mike will say you know he's the the coordinator for the Call of Cthulhu line and he will just say Paul do you want to work on this project and I'll say yep that sounds great and I will uh, you you know depending on what the project is it may be scenarios Uh, it's usually often a a collection of scenarios that I've worked on so the last one I worked on was uh, Mansions of Madness 2 yeah, uh, and that is one I can talk about. Uh, it's yeah. not out yet, and I'm not sure when it will be out. You know, but it's been, you know, it's 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 in process. So that's a collection of five scenarios. There was a volume one, right, uh, that came out a couple a few years back. Mm-hmm. There was the original version that came out in the around 1990, I think 89, 90, yeah. uh, and the call the. Uh, volume two is going to include one of those scenarios, yeah, you know, updated and and reworked. Oh, cool. uh, yeah, because it is like what is it? That's thirty years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> I think anything that's written thirty years ago, you know, stands some up. Even though it's historic, you know, it was set in the nineteen twenties, it still stands some, um, you know, tailoring to the new rules with new mm-hmm. advice and just new yeah updating to to modern kind of uh, sensibilities and standards really yeah i think a lot of um you know if you think about how role playing was back in the 1980s versus how role playing has evolved now you know many argue that we're in the golden age of role playing tabletop games right now with just so many being out there and it being very much popularized through different mediums mm. you know so that you know, the the average player has different expectations now than they did in the 1980s, you know, yeah. and some of them have been around since then. So they their expectations are one born out of experience, you know, like they've they've experienced so many things. So now they have different expectations than they did when they were maybe, you know, 15 years old playing <laughs> you know, yeah. a, a scenario in the 1980s, you know, so um and yeah, this is very... part of the job is is trying to cater to all those different people. So you know, imagine. as 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 authors, uh, you know, putting stuff out, we know that not everybody plays the game like I do and like you do, and everybody's got you know the, the you know broad brush. There are various different approaches, but you, you've kind of got to put it in a way that it might be somebody who's just picked up the game a couple of weeks ago, and it might be somebody who's been playing it forty years. Yeah. Um. So you've kind of got to try and offer support to all of those different people as much as one can. I I think that raises an interesting question. Um, When you guys are writing your scenarios, um, what, what are the, um, 
like who's that who's the audience um that you're writing for is it you know like do do you have kind of a target demographic that you're trying to like you know that that's, that's sort of your main bread and butter audience or are you just just trying to write a great scenario that would appease a lot of people i think the latter yeah okay um i mean sometimes if we're writing it's not so much like a demographic like age mm-hmm. um but it's more that sometimes you might be writing one designed for new keepers. Okay. Uh, but that could be a new keeper who's in their teens or in their whatever's, 100%. you know, in their fifties yep. or, or whatever it could be. So it's, it's, it's more to do with experience. Having said that most scenarios, I was asked about, you know, the top three scenarios for starting keepers a while back. And it's like, well, there's not many that are actually designed for starting keepers. Mm-hmm. Some of them I'd say are more complex than others. Yeah. And I'd say my full fathom five is probably I mean, I think I put in the blurb on Drive Through RPG. If you're a if this is the first <laughs> Call of Cthulhu scenario you've run, you might ru- want to run something else. But if yeah. you read it and want to run it, knock yourself out, you know, go yeah. for it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the first scenario I ran was from the starting um the starter bots. Yeah. Right, which was a dead man stomp. Um, and then I ran um the edge of madness, uh, edge of darkness. Edge of darkness, um, yeah. Yeah, that was in there as well. And had great times with both of those, but that was enough to kind of get my Cthulhu feet under me to uh be able to run other scenarios, which you know, I I saw that blurb that you had put in your full fathom five, and I said, Oh, okay, well, let me read this and see what's going on here. And I read it and I'm like, okay, I can, I, I feel like I can handle this because, uh, you know, one of the best parts about Call of Cthulhu is that um, there's just an unpredictability that happens with your players hmm. uh, when, when, you know, the, the crud hits the fan is the polite way of saying <laughs> it, you know, when, when, when things go south, players will start to do things because they're just like, I don't know what to do. This is going to get wild, you know? And yeah. so, um, uh, yeah, anyway, so it's, um, it's kind of interesting because, you know, like I, I, I read your full five and five and I said, oh, okay, I've got this no problem. But just knowing that I had already been through the gamut a couple of times with, I've read Dead Man Stomp a couple of times and also Edge of Madness a couple of times. And so, uh, you know, you just uh, understand there's a bit of unpredictability with your players that are going to happen um, with, I think more so with Call of Cthulhu than if I were running a D and D campaign um, just because, when yeah. the psychological hits there's some <laughs> funny choices that people make you know so yeah i think in a in dnd and and games of that ilk you know i i, love, I like playing dnd as well but there's you're more of a party and you've kind of got a mission mm-hmm. whatever that might be i mean i'm talking generally obviously yeah, yeah, for people sure. will play it however they want to play it and as as your character class and background, they kind of give you, you know, objectives. You're trying to, you know, in D and D, you're trying to acquire more stuff and go up levels, and that's kind of an inbuilt set of goals for you to for you to follow. D and D players might play it however they want to play it, and then play their characters in all sorts of different ways. Obviously, mm-hmm. but that, that's that's a that's a, a starting base. Whereas with Call of Duty, you've really got you're really just playing a bunch of characters and they could be anything. It could be us three. Yeah. In, you know, just like we are, yeah, because you play real people. It could be us three. And, you know, I get a phone call now and somehow 
we all get hooked up in some kind of mystery. So, but we we've all got real lives and our own agendas, and and so there's a there is a I don't know. There, there's less perhaps direction less kind of in-programmed direction than there is in something like mm-hmm. D&D. I feel like I'm not expressing that very clearly, but, um, it, and, and again, going back to the horror films, people do all sorts of, the characters in horror films do all sorts of weird things. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. It's Unexplainable things, right? That yeah. Like, Why are you running into that building? You know? Um, exactly. and, uh, you know, I think I think Mike Mason said it really well when we had him on the show one time. He says one of the best parts about Call of Cthulhu is that um, you're experiencing heroic moments um, with normal people, yeah, right. And that's really where like the heroism comes in. Like when you when you play a, a thing like D and D or even Star Wars or something like that, you I mean you are very clearly the heroes. You've been given heroic talents and traits and things like that to. Uh, overcome any obstacle call cthulhu you're just the normal guy you don't even have that many hit points and you're probably terrible with a firearm you you can barely drive you know i mean like there's like all of these things that you know you're just like a normal average person um which i think adds to the elements of horror and terror and it it brings me to um one of the main things i want to talk to you about um is that you know, you can play D&D, you can play Star Wars, you can play um, all of these different genre of of uh, games. And always when we hit about this time of the year, um, I hear a lot of people say like, okay, I am very interested in doing a horror one shot with my D&D group. Or, I, you know, I'd really like to inject a, a, a spooky story into, um, you know, my, my gaming group that I have is just a little one shot. So, you know, if they're not playing, first off, I would say go play Call of Cthulhu if you want to do an awesome horror one shot. Go get the starter set for twenty five dollars, which is an amazing price for what you get because it's it, it's fantastic and it and the horror is built in there. But mm. if you really want to take your gaming campaign that you guys have been doing for a couple of years and just do a little side quest to have like a little Halloween style story, what are some what are some pieces of advice, Paul, that you would give to a GM that's trying to figure out how to like take a normal D and D heroic campaign? They're off to go fight the lich that you know is terrorizing the city, and really turn that ratchet up the horror and you know make it a really spooky story. So I think that you know horror is is something that plays on our emotions. So mm-hmm. you've got to try and latch into that in some way, and the way that I mean, there's, I think there's two things here. One is to try and create some atmosphere. And if you're playing in a brightly lit room in the middle of the day with the sunlight streaming in, you can still do it. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's a reason why we're afraid of the dark, right? Yeah. So, well, maybe there isn't, but we are afraid of the dark generally. Uh, and if you if you can play in some evocative setting with uh you know candles and 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 some maybe some creepy music or something in the background that all can help just like halloween party if you had a halloween party yeah outside in the sunlight that's one thing but you have a halloween party yeah in a basement 
with low lighting and creepy music and everybody's in costume and there's cobwebs and everything, then you just get into the mood more. And it's about getting into the mood. You know, I've said this before. It's like a totally different, but a romantic meal, candlelight, you know, glass of wine yeah. and, and all those things that make it a romantic meal. The, there's a reason we do all those things is to, to evoke those emotions. So that's one thing is kind of the, the set dressing, if you like. Yeah. But you don't always have access to that because you might be at a convention and you're not in control of the, the surroundings. But I think what you do always have control of is yourself. And you can't do it all the time. You can't make it constant horror. And if you think of your favorite horror movie, it's, I'm going to say it's not horror all of the time. There are, mm -hmm. yeah, there are peaks and troughs. And when I'm trying to evoke that 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 sort of horror thing, I just try and feel it in in me a bit, and then try and communicate it. And I just think, what would be, what would be kind of what would be creepy and scary here to me? And I just try and exaggerate those things, or bring those things out, or point them out to the players, yeah. um, and then. If there's something that kind of gives me a shiver down my spine, I just try and evoke that in the way that I play the NPCs, in the things they say, and, and just try and communicate that feeling. Because I think there is that sense of empathy that if somebody is feeling something, we pick up on that. Mm. And that's, I, I don't know if that's helpful, but that's kind of what I do. Um, yeah, so that, I... can be, that can be the things like lowering your voice and, and you, know, mm. you know, just just simple things like that and the tone of voice. Yeah, it's it's a little bit harder um, to do this than just to watch a movie, right? Because the movie, totally. you're just you're you're strapped in, you're along for the ride, and and the director um, can choose when to show you things that you as the audience know, but the main characters don't, right? Yeah, and it's hard to do that with a role playing game, especially an investigatory role playing game that Cthulhu usually is, right? Like you're trying to uncover things. You can't reveal all of the, you know, backstory or all of the things that are happening in the background because it would kind of be a spoiler, a little bit of what's happening. Yeah. Um, but what I think is key is kind of showing some of the unexpected, right? Like um, some of those things that give you those clues to something nefarious is going on or something dark or sinister is happening that um, they're just not expecting there. Yeah. And I think, yeah, absolutely. Revealing those things because we role-playing games that there's nothing actually happening, is there? It's all just yeah. in what we say and what we imagine. And I think that the the key thing of role playing games, the 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 I don't know, the secret of role playing games is that they inspire our imagination and getting people on the same page. You know, so yeah, so if somebody has got down in the cellar, well, they've got their torch, they've gone down in the cellar, and they might not be really thinking about what that means. So you can say to them, well you're down in the cellar you're on your own now aren't you can can you hear the others upstairs and they're like yeah i can no don't, you can't you can't hear them upstairs anymore it's really cold down here and and just try and evoke that feeling of of isolation you know whatever it is but yeah. but just really focus on the moment you know like you would in a film 
you know, you, you'd suddenly they'd just be there shining the light around and and you'd maybe see their their the flash of their face looking sort of pale and frightened and and just tr just really try and bring them into the moment um however you can however you can do that by just making them focus mm. and 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 i think trying to maybe focus on one player for that or you know a little group and and try and get you know everybody else to to quieten down and not be making jokes and things and you and i'm not saying tell everybody stop making jokes it's like yeah. you just got to but I think they respond to you as the GM. So if you suddenly become very serious, then, you know, other people may do as well. I really love this idea that, uh, you know, and I, and to be honest with you, I had never really thought of this is really make that moment personal for the player there. You mm. know what I mean? Like, and, and like you said, like, you know, you're down here in the cellar now, what are you thinking? What, you know, like, can you hear this? Can you feel this? Like, and really kind of make that, that sensory experience that you're talking about. And I, I think, um, because what I tend to focus on, I think as a GM is the situation of what's happening right. and not really make that situation a personal experience for that player in that moment or that player's character, you know, like, so this is what you see, this is what you you hear, you know, and, and not really internal being able to let them internalize that. And I think the, the one of the key things here is don't say those things you just said, Justin, yeah. but don't say this is what you feel. Yeah. Ask the player you know, how they feel. And also maybe like, mm -hmm. well, no, not maybe. Have like the X card and things like that. So if people are yeah. like genuinely getting freaked out, you know, you've got some sort of way out for them to indicate, actually, I'm not enjoying this. Right. Um, yeah. Hopefully that's that's not the case, but that, that's a good uh, a good backup that, that you know you've got that there to to fall back on. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think sort of trying to to personalize it and just trying and like I said, this is this is like you've been playing, you've been having a laugh, and then maybe an hour in, and then something happens, and, and you kind of just zoom in on that on right. that moment, and that and people are going to remember those moments. Um, yeah. and, the, and the contrast between, you know, being all jolly and having a laugh and, and everything and, and those kind of horror moments, I think, is the more you can accentuate that, the better. And those are the bits that people are going to going to remember, I hope. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the horror movies that you watch start out with a lot of people having a great time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's Literally. like, hey, you know, we're going on vacation. Like, everybody's having a good time. We're at this hotel, you know, and we're checking in. We're having a laugh. We're, we're doing all these fun things. And they turn around and there's two girls standing in dresses just staring at them, you know, like, a.k.a. The Shining, you know. And you're just like, oh, okay, that's really weird because it's out of the ordinary that you see. You know what I mean? And, and then, yeah. oh, it's, okay, it's going back to, hey, happy, like, we're, you know, having a good time. And you know, injecting some of those things where it's just um, un unnatural, right? Because you wouldn't see normally two girls standing side by side just staring at you holding a balloon, you know, like that's very weird. And it's, and it's that you contrast know? between the two. So you've got to establish yeah. the good bit at the start, I think. So this is why often you know, we, we don't show the monster right at the start. Sometimes mm -hmm. you can if you want that effect, but... But I think typically, as soon as you bring in the supernatural, as soon as you bring in the horror, people switch to focusing on that. And that works better, I think, generally, if you've established 
a baseline of you know we're just real people and we've got something to do that's just normal regular maybe we're just at a party chatting mm-hmm. and you you start to establish some element of real life and you start to establish these are characters we care about then you've got something to play with uh and and because people you know if they're not if they're not bothered about their characters if they're not if there's no investment in the characters you know it's hard then to to really make the horror hit home as much i think yeah and as the, right, and I think, as, oh, as the gm you've you've got to if you're not going to um, not going to sacrifice player characters for that investment you've got to do that with the non-player characters um to to get them drawn into the danger mm. of the situation or the horror of the situation um and and that's really on first of all if you're going to introduce a non-player character for the first time um you're going there's going to have to be some depth there in order for when the bad thing happens to that non-player character that that amps up the horror a little bit that yeah. that, that juices that uh, and and that's a little bit more work on the gm than probably you know, then just here's monster, fight monster, get gold, move forward. Yeah. 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 yeah I was going to say, uh, you know, you, you said if the, if the players aren't invested in their characters, right. And you kind of establish that. I was going to mention, like you said, Dan, the, the non-player characters using that as well. Like, you know, having them get invested in, you know, maybe, it, you know, I'm using this hotel example, but maybe the concierge is a really charismatic character and then something bad happens, right? So mm. they're sort of hooked into that NPC as well that um, has impact because they're emotionally attached to um, to them as well, right? Yeah, and if it's an NPC, uh, what I like to try and do is at the start, yeah, sort of talk to them about the NPC that's going to, yeah, this, this key NPC that's important mm-hmm. and maybe just put it to the players rather than telling them oh this is your brother or you know you really like this person say to the players yeah there's this guy um what why did why why is your character um friendly with this guy you know mm-hmm. who are you related to this guy or is he a yeah. friend or you know does he owe you money or you know whatever it might be uh, just to because I think always things that the players come up with, are usually more emotionally there's more connection if the players yeah. come up with them and they a they remember them better and b it's usually some there's a little bit of them that comes through into that relationship mm. yeah absolutely absolutely well um these are all excellent uh tips on how to inject some horror into it and you know what the uh, one of the some of the best horror games I've played uh, were non horror RPGs, right? Uh, just because uh, you mentioned that contrast that uh, that you mm. can have with it, and uh, so Dan and I we paint miniatures for miniature games that we have. And if you any artist worth their salt will tell you the key to having really good looking miniatures is contrast. Right, you need to have your high. You need to have your lights. You need to have your lows. You need to have your, you know, your highlights, your shadows, and things like that. Your different colors that contrast mm-hmm. with each other to really make it, you know, stand out and pop. And um, you know, I was when you were talking about the contrast of the good times and the horror times. I think that you know, I was reminded of that of where 
you know, to really make those moments stand out and play off of each other, you need to have that contrast. And so, you know, whether that's within the scenario, you definitely need to have that within the scenario that you're running, but even just injecting a horror session within your yeah. larger campaign can really play to that fact of like, Ooh, that was a horror session because, you know, your, the rest of your session may be, you know, the, the gold and glory campaign that you're headed after and not really dealing with something that is nefarious and, you know, different. Yeah. I think, I think I was hearing somebody recently saying comedy isn't a genre. You can have comedy, anything mm -hmm. yeah, you can have, and any any genre you can take and add comedy to it if you, if you so wish you can have comedy i mean horror is a genre yeah. because of all the horror tropes so you can have comedy horror <clears throat> but in a way you can take horror or just the feeling you know the not the i don't know the vampires and the tentacles and everything but the just the, the sensations and put that into whatever um whatever story you want really you know particularly if it isn't horror based so i'm just trying to think of an example off the top of my head but but sometimes when yeah, we might go and see a, a, a movie or a tv show and we're not expecting it to be horror <clears throat> and and then suddenly it takes a twist and we're like oh oh this is not what i expected yeah uh, it's, I, I particularly so often now we watch something we know it's like oh it's got supernatural you know it, it, we, we already know it's got the supernatural in it but i think it's always so great that when you you're watching something and it's not until the supernatural turns up like halfway through and you don't know it's going to happen obviously yeah. with call of clue game it's written on the title everybody just <laughs> know you, you kind of feel a bit shortchanged if there isn't any supernatural right but um if you're doing it with a, a different game uh, and you introduce it doesn't have to be supernatural but something you know that horror vibe uh yeah. yeah i think you can fit it into to whatever you want yeah yeah absolutely and if well, you're a horror, um, horror fan i guess you're gonna do that exactly exactly well we're we're getting close to time here and uh so i wanted to ask you as, as sort of our parting advice if someone is interested in running a cthulhu game let's say they're an experience keeper or not what scenario would you recommend that they go and pick up um you know if they if they wanted to run up sort of a one-shot Cthulhu game what's a what's a good one for them to 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 run okay so uh I mean you mentioned the the starter box set the Call yep. of Cthulhu starter box set is is a brilliant introduction it really oh. you you can you can start off not knowing anything about role-playing games let alone Call of Cthulhu and open that up and you know play the solo and learn the rules and then you know the one-on-one -on -one and then the, the running for small groups so that's that's a really good introduction I think off the top of my head, if you were to run a one shot, um, well, with potential to go further, I would say, I mean, there's two that spring to mind that are both kind of in the core rules. Uh, so there's some um, Crimson Letters in uh, by Alan Bly in the in the core rule book, which mm -hmm. I think is a great scenario. And it's right there in the Keeper rule book. Yeah. I don't really hear it being I mean, it is I do hear of it being played, but I don't hear of it being played enough, uh, I think. Yeah. And that it's got a great facility in there. And this isn't a great spoiler, I think, because when you play it, it's not going to matter. But for keepers, you get to choose who the bad guy is. Mm. So it, it's written in such a way that 
it could be quite a few different people. Obviously, as as a player, that doesn't matter because yeah, there is going to be the keeper's going to have decided who the bad who the bad. I'm using baddie in inverted commas, yeah. but who the baddie is, and and that is just such a I think quite an unusual setup, and it's just such an engaging scenario as well. So there's that, and that has the potential to lead into you know uh, uh, more than a one shot if you wish. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's also Blackwater Creek uh, by my friend Scott Dord. It, that's in the the starter box set. No, forgive me. That's in the keeper screen set, mm. uh, and that's a that's a scenario in which potentially you can play investigators from the Miskatonic University, or if the you know if the keeper in the group wishes to, it is you can also play a group of uh, like boot, bootlegger gangsters. Oh, nice. Um, getting in there in the you know in the 1920s and all that so uh yeah those two scenarios i, I would put forward as uh, pretty solid well very solid uh scenarios and i think you know you're always gonna have fun with either of those and I they're and they're go ahead dan i i think that's great i think sometimes some of the best adventures are completely overlooked because they're sitting on the shelf in the core rule book um, especially for longtime gamers that have built up mm-hmm. lots of lots of core rule books on the shelf um, I think there's this, this hesitancy as a as a player who owns the core rule book to try to not mm. to read that. And as the, as the GM or the, or the keeper, your your default is well, if other people in the group have the core rule book, they probably read that adventure. I think that's genius design to say, you know, the spoiler will still be the keeper's decision, and it could be somebody at the table. I think that's really cool. Yeah. 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 Very good. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on our show. We loved having you on here. I feel like we could have talked for at least another hour or two. Yeah, I think so. So many many things to do. So we'd love to have you back at another time uh, to, you know, just keep talking about what's happening there at uh, Chaosium and what what, what you're up to. So you are welcome back, sir, to uh, any time on the show. So thank you. We we thank you for being here. And uh, to our listeners, please go check out uh chaosium go check out the miskatonic university and also check out full fathom five because as i've been reading through it i'm very excited to run this in about three weeks and i'll give my report on it when um in mid-november after we get done uh running it at our guild con so um but uh, to everybody else have a great night and we will see you all at the tables good night